0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hello and welcome to New Books in Women's History, a channel of the New Books Network. I am Rebecca Turkington and I am so delighted to be joined today by Dr. Jane Freeland to discuss her new book, Feminist Transformations and Domestic Violence in Divided Berlin, 1968 to 2002, which has just been published by Oxford University Press. Jane, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me. So Dr. Freeland is a lecturer in history and a fellow at the Institute for the Humanities and Social Sciences at Queen Mary University, London. Um, She is a historian of women and gender in modern Europe, focusing on the history of feminism in the 20th century. And she recently led a project for the German Historical Institute of London on the intersections between feminist movements and the media. So, Feminist Transformations and Domestic Violence in Divided Berlin is your first book. Congratulations. Um, And I think I saw on Twitter that it is sold out from the publisher.
2: Uh, Yes, it is, but still available online through open access. Yes, so so.
1: luckily for all of the listeners, you can read it online for free. (laughs) Um, I have so many questions for you today because this is a really rich book that covers a lot of very interesting themes. Um, It traces the evolution of domestic violence activism and the women's shelter movement in post-war Germany, both East and West. And in doing that, you also look more broadly at the circulation of feminist ideas in the media, what activists gain and lose from mainstream political support, and how the framing of these movements continues to have implications for today's activism. So we will discuss all of those things, um, but I wanted to start by just asking you, what first drew you to this research and how did this build on your past work?
2: Uh, yeah, it, um, I, I think I came to it, um, although the book talks a lot about West Germany, I actually came to the topic through East Germany. Um, and when I was a graduate student, I was really interested in these East German, a particular genre of East German films uh, called gegenwartsfilme or films of everyday life, which become really popular and common in the 1970s and 80s. And I was really struck by how many of those films featured domestic violence and um, I, even gender-based violence more broadly, sexual harassment was thematized in a lot of these films. And I just found it so interesting that in a, a country that we think of as being very controlled, as being uh, where life is so strictly regulated under state socialism, that there were such critical reflections on violence against women. And Initially, I actually just wanted to look at East Germany. Um, But as I went over to Germany and started doing research, I realised that there was such an interesting comparative element to look at um, and to think about the way different ideas crossed the the Berlin Wall, the Cold War divide, but also how, how women tried to address these in in similar ways, in different ways. Um, And then, of course, how they then came together in 89 and 1990 um, to to tackle it together. Mm -hmm.
1: So before we jump into the specific history of the shelter movement, can you give just a little bit more context about what that emerges from, you know, how does the new women's movement emerge in Germany and what's happening in the 1960s and 70s that this domestic violence activism builds on?
2: Yeah. So Germany has, um, a really long history, a very rich history of feminist activism going all the way back to the 19th century, but it's really not until the seventies, the 1970s that domestic violence starts to get, um, attention and it emerges particularly out of or well, the feminist movement at that time really emerges out of a confrontation or confrontations within the 1968 student movement, where women who are active in in leftist politics and student politics at that time start to be really confronted with their own uh, inequalities and the way in which gender norms are shaping the student movement you know for example they're not listened to by their you know the see you know the really elite male comrades you know the bright lights of the student movement who are all men um don't necessarily listen to what women have to say and women feel like they're um you know put into roles that are about helping about Handing out leaflets, maybe they're only seen as sort of sex objects by the movement, or and and more broadly, and they're only given status by virtue of their relationship with a male uh, leftist, and and so these sorts of experiences really start women reflect to reflect on their own um, inequalities. And it's particularly out of, um, well, it's particularly the experiences of um, a, a Berlin group that, that we have sort of a very public reckoning with gender inequalities in the student movement at this time. And this happens most famously in um, the the tomato throw, where Helke Zander is at a big meeting of the student movement, and and she calls them out for for reproducing uh, the inequalities that women experience in society more broadly. And then the meeting just moves on without having addressed her critiques, and one of her fellow Berlin activists, Sigrid Ruger, gets up and starts throwing tomatoes Uh, at these sort of socialist leaders of the student movement. And this really kickstarts this late 1960s um, movement. At that stage, it's not quite yet a women's movement. They're still very much firmly in socialist politics. They're looking at how to reconcile women's roles as mother uh, with political activism, how to take care of children in communal ways that can reflect anti-authoritarian politics. Um, When the student movement comes to an end in the late 1960s, this is where we see the sort of uh, transformation or the emergence of a much more specifically uh, feminist Oriented women's movement. The first big campaign is abortion which I talk a lot about in the book and and then it's out of out of this movement that looks at questions of self-determination of of women's rights of gender structures and uh, and inequalities that domestic violence emerges as a key discussion um, and as another I think lens much like abortion and reproductive rights is in a lens into gender inequality. Uh, domestic violence also emerges um, in the aftermath of this very big abortion rights campaign mm-hmm. to as a different kind of lens, as a different way of querying women's equality and and trying to empower and emancipate women out of out of these gender roles that have so um, structured their lives up until this point. Mm-hmm.
1: So, for these these first domestic violence activists, um, how did they understand the problem of domestic violence, and how did
2: they envision the solutions to it? Initially, I think it's domestic violence is very much understood as physical violence, as being about about hitting, and then. And that, and that, those physical, this physical violence, is linked to broader structures in which women's um, women's claims to having been abused are ignored by the police, by doctors, by social workers, um, by people who see it happening, and that those um, those structures then and require women to to remain in these physically violent relationships. So this is this is how it's sort of initially understood as being specific physical acts that reflect a broader um, gendered oppression of of women. As a result, what they see as being a solution is to empower women and to chip away at these structures by empowering women, actually. So in enabling women to see their own equality, getting women to um, fight against these structures that um, that mean they have to stay in 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 these abusive relationships is seen as a way of, of overcoming domestic violence. So it's, on the one hand, it is about addressing physical violence, but it is, there's, a, I think, an ideological part to it about um, emancipating and empowering women to move out of or to grow away from um, these sort of traditional gender roles that, that keep them in these relationships
1: so this is, of course, a conversation that's happening in a lot of different places around the world. Can you talk a little bit more about that global conversation around domestic violence and what the German movement is gaining or contributing to through these transnational links?
2: Yeah, the transnational links are are so important for for the success of the German movement, um, and in particular, I. What I find found really interesting is it's that it's the UK that is the, the key example um, for domestic violence activism and in particular the shelter movement in West Germany. And it's Chiswick Women's Aid, the one of the world's first modern women's shelter, which is then made comes to international attention through Erin Pizzi's book. Scream quietly, or the neighbours will hear, and this sparks really a global movement to open women's shelters. And you can see after the shelter opens in Chiswick, you see very similar shelters opening in the US, um, in Australia, in Canada, and then also in Germany. And the German activists are very, very open. I mean, they they base their call for a shelter in Germany on the success of the British shelter movement. So they use it to to legitimise domestic violence activism because they can say, look, women in Britain are doing it and we need to do that too. So that I think is probably the most important transnational link that that we can see at this time. But then there's also big events like the International Tribunal for Crimes Against Women that takes place in Brussels in 1974. And the the West German women have the biggest delegation at this sort of massive tribunal, which draws in women from across the world to discuss uh, various issues of gender inequality. Violence against women is certainly a key theme. And and out of that conference, violence as a theme amongst feminist activists in West Germany is really taken up, and it becomes a central way of understanding women's inequality. So I think we can sort of see these different international examples, not only helping to legitimise uh, domestic violence activism in Germany, but also to help broaden understandings of of women's inequality and its relationship to violence.
1: So these activists are successful in opening a shelter um, in 1976. Could you talk about what, how was how that received by the public? How was it received by the press, by everyday people, by policymakers, um, when they finally are successful in doing this?
2: Yeah, I would say there is a mixed response. Um, certainly there is a lot of support coming from women's groups uh, from women who are living with domestic abuse even before the shelter opens women are arriving at the shelter looking for emergency accommodation so you know so we can see that it is it is already um, very quickly taken up within women's circles. I think the liberal media certainly is very supportive of the shelter movement and one of the reasons the movement and the shelter project is successful in the first place is because they get uh, the support of the media who who use their platforms to call for shelters to be open. So they say look well, they they using this example of uh, Chiswick Women's Aid in the UK. They say, look, we there are shelters in the UK. We need something like that in Germany. And there's a group in Berlin who want to do that. So the liberal press is certainly uh, very supportive of it. Um, tabloids or more right wing or more conservative news media outlets um are much more on the fence initially, at least. Later on, they do become much more supportive of it, but initially, they're very sceptical about these shelters, um, particularly with respect to um, the the way in which. You know they portray the shelters as being very in very poor conditions, as sort of sites sites for the radicalization of young people. You know they cite children having called uh, neighbors "capitalist pigs," <laughs> and you know and they and they send in undercover reporters to go and experience what life is like. Um, so you can sort of see this negative, sensationalized. Um, fear mongering really amongst some of these more conservative tabloid uh, news outlets policymakers um, for the most part actually I are quite positive and I think the reason why this shelter um, is able to open and is able to to go on for so long is because there is strong support uh, for the project, particularly in the Berlin Senate and the Senate Office for um, Family, Youth, and Sport, that that really do uh, do a lot of work to to get the shelter started and to to bring it the legitimacy that will enable it to be to get a broad base of support. Where you do perhaps see some more negative responses are from some of the neighbours. the The shelter, this first shelter opened in Berlin, is opened in a very, uh, very nice, very leafy middle class area of Berlin, Berlin Grunewald, and it's in a big villa, and the neighbours in the area are are concerned about what, you know, what is coming to their neighbourhood. And one neighbour in particular writes a series of letters to uh, to the Berlin mayor and to the senator responsible for the shelter. And what I find very interesting is that in all of his letters, he, he questions the... Um, he questions whether this shelter is really needed. Is this the best way of addressing this problem? Um, you know, what about these poor children? What about the poor men whose wives are taking their children away? Uh, but never in all of these letters does does this man ever talk about violence against women or why the women would need to go to the shelter in the first place. So, yeah, I think there's there are a lot of, Mixed messages going on particularly in the in these early periods but but broadly, I would say once the shelter opens, there is quite a lot of support. Mm-hmm.
1: So I want to ask you about another community that has maybe a surprising response to them, and that is the women who are actually using these shelters. Um, you mentioned that they're not exactly the voiceless victims that maybe the shelter organizers thought they might be. Um, what did they want? What did they say about these shelters? And how did that challenge the expectations of the women who created them?
2: Yeah, so if we go back, Back to to this ideological idea, you know, or vision um, underpinning some of this activism of of empowering women, of emancipating them from patriarchal gender norms, so that they, they can then leave an abusive relationship.
0: This this
2: is a very idealistic goal, um, and and what happens is that when women come to the shelter they're not necessarily interested in taking part in consciousness raising um they they don't necessarily want to be empowered sometimes they just want a few nights away from their abusive husband they want some you know some peace some quiet and then for the most part um they will return after a couple of nights away they will return to their violent uh, partner and and this is very confounding for for these for these activists who who want to to help these women and to want to get them to be empowered and to and to leave um and what what the book traces is the way in which over time the shelters, this, I, I, these idealistic I, visions are replaced by much more practical mechanisms of support because they realise that the women coming to the shelters see the shelter as a support service. as And they come there expecting to get support and to get help. And over time, shelters increasingly adapt to those needs. So they start in more, um, they employ social workers more, they're less, fewer volunteers, they bring in professional legal consult, consults, uh, they bring in medical support, they bring in uh, migration support for women with visa issues, and and it professionalises in response to to these women who come there thinking that this is, you know, this is a support service, this is a welfare service. Um, yeah. So to stay on the topic for a moment
1: of transformation, um, you have a really interesting strand of argument throughout this book about the tensions between the feminist movement who originates these ideas and then the co-optation of it in a sense by both state institutions and the media. Um, sort of how those two work together and then um, shape each other, I guess. Could you talk a little bit more um, in the early years of the shelter movement, what is the role of the media? What is the role of, you know the bureaucracy of the federal system in shaping the story of what domestic violence is and in shaping the logistics of these shelters themselves?
2: the media and politicians are really vital to to shaping the movement and and in in the book i I do discuss this as co-optation and and it is but without that support and without this shaping um i'm not sure how successful the movement would be i mean this Their support for for domestic violence activism is really vital to uh, legitimising it and to creating a a groundswell of popular support for for addressing domestic violence. But what what I also show is that the way they produce the success is by firstly leaning into very gendered images of women as victims, as in need of protection, and in need of support from violent men, um, often violent men who are racialized in these medial discussions. Um, and, and secondly, so alongside sort of leaning into these really gendered, racialized images of women as victims, they secondly distance the shelter movement and domestic violence activism from its grassroots origins, from its feminist politics. And it does this explicitly. Um, Before the shelter opens in 1976, the Berlin Senate office uh, sends a delegate to Chiswick Women's Aid to attend a workshop and the delegate returns and says, yes, we absolutely need to have a shelter like this in Germany. It's a complex problem. It's a serious problem. We need to do something about it. But they also say in this report that they need any, any, um, any shelter like Chiswick Women's Aid in the UK that is opened in Germany must make sure that it does not present itself simply as um, a wing of the women's movement. And they say that doing so will not only uh, simplify the problem of domestic violence, but it will also um, produce a backlash and that people won't support it because they'll just see this as being um, you know, some kind of feminist women's lib project and they, so they do this explicitly. They ask people in their reports on the shelter not to use words like patriarchy but instead to just let uh, women residents speak for themselves. In a lot of the media reports that are very supportive of the shelter, feminism, the women's movement, women's emancipation is not mentioned at all. When it is discussed, it's either about, you know, the American or the British women's liberation movements or it frames women's um, emancipation in solely financial terms, that it's about the shelters need to help women earn or women need to be empowered or emancipated so that they can earn an independent wage, which will help them... um, address domestic violence so it's it's I think it's a funny tension really in the book because this support is so important to getting domestic violence activism off the ground and yet it also um really hems in the the discussions of domestic violence and I think frames it in some ways that um come back to to haunt the movement let's say.
1: No, yeah, I think this the discussion you have about this in the book is so interesting because I think those tensions are present in so many different kinds of politics and to, so to be able to read more about it at this granular level in domestic violence activism has a lot to say about sort of feminist pol- politics writ large. Um But yeah, as we've been talking about this movement in West Germany, um, remember that this is Cold War Germany. And there's, in fact, another side of Berlin. So the second half of your book looks at East Germany. So let's move there now. And could you talk a little bit about the way that the framing of domestic violence differed in socialist Germany compared to West Germany?
2: It makes for a very interesting comparison uh, to look at East and West. Um, And in East Germany, domestic violence is seen as being a problem of capitalism, that uh, bourgeois capitalist gender norms produce violence against women in the home. And it is alien to life under state socialism where men and women are equal and
0: and this this is reproduced all the time in the media in east germany but also in um in divorce cases so when women are, are attempting to leave a violent uh spouse they this this discussion gets brought up and often um abusive men are portrayed as somehow um failed socialists as needing more socialist education and so, uh, if their wives are particularly good socialists, so members of the party or good workers, often the court says you should stay together because your wife's good socialist um, habits will help the abusive man become a better socialist and therefore no longer be abusive. So, it's, really, it's a really fascinating way. But even I think what I find um, interesting is that despite having this really, uh, very strong narrative of equality, um, despite, um, you know, pushing the blame of domestic violence onto to capitalism, actually a lot of the experiences of women in dealing with domestic abuse across the Berlin Wall are very similar, um, despite these sort of different discursive um, regimes that they're, they're living in. So
1: could you explain then how anti-domestic violence activism mer- emerges in East Germany? And where do you see the first examples of women starting to grapple with this topic?
2: Mm-hmm. The topic of violence against women does not emerge until much later. So whereas in the 1970s in West Germany, we see it uh, being discussed in the East, it's not until the 1980s, Um And we see it emerging in uh, the non state women's movement. So, that is women's groups often meeting uh, under the umbrella of the Protestant Church. They're usually connected to the broader dissident movement that are querying um, state socialist rule, looking for some more, um, more political freedoms. And it's in those women's groups that violence against women starts to be discussed. And in particular, one group in Weimar really spearhead the topic in East Germany. And this is the Weimar Women's uh, Tea Parlour, the Weimar frauen And they, they have, in comparison to the West, they have a very broad idea of violence against women. And we see this. They they hold lectures on the topic. They um, they run a survey of women's experiences, primarily of sexual violence, but they do broaden out the discussion um, to allow women to discuss other experiences of sexual and gender based violence. And and they 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 are really responsible for driving um, the feminist women's movement discussion of violence against women in East Germany. There's also a um, a major women's event in Dresden where they take up this theme of violence against women. At the same time as we're having these women's discussions in East Germany, there are also people working in Caritas, which is a Catholic welfare organisation, who start work to open a crisis shelter and initially it's planned as as a a general crisis shelter and according to to, um, the man I interviewed who worked at this shelter, he said that originally they thought this is going to be for homeless people, for people with drug and alcohol addiction issues. And he said they were just totally flawed when all of these women experiencing domestic violence showed up in need of shelter. And I find it so interesting that they had no idea that so many women would come uh, to to, seek them out for shelter. When um, having looked at the files from women's groups, (laughs) you can see very clearly that these women's groups are promoting this shelter as a site for women experiencing domestic violence to go to. So it's sort of interesting that um, there are these sort of different movements to tackle domestic violence, but they don't necessarily always know about each other. And
1: how does, on a practical level, the activism in East Germany differ from sort of the Western feminist thought and practice? Is it a different coalition of activists? Is it a different framing? You know, Where do you see the um, dividing lines there?
2: Yeah, I think I think here the the origins of the movement play a really big role. So whereas in West Germany the women's movement emerged out of a conflict, you know, particularly with with men, right? In the student movement, that's that sort of where their their target lies is with men, is with the patriarchy. And so in West Germany domestic violence activism is very separatist it is women only it is women focused in East Germany because it emerges in a dissident um, milieu the the relationship with men is is very different and and men are included as activists in the movement they're allowed to attend some of the events that are held um, the the Caritas shelter, it had men and women working at it. It was not a women-only space. And, and instead, their target is much more the state. So this is what allows men and women to work together uh, much more easily in East Germany because because the the state is the enemy, right? The state is the one who isn't um, taking domestic violence seriously, who isn't doing anything to protect women from gender and sexual uh, violence. So so I think it, it creates a very different um, practice, but also discussion. One of the things that I found really striking is in that a lot of in a lot of the East German discussions of of gender-based violence, Men are included as being victims. So, in West Germany, if we look at a lot of the discussion on rape, it focuses on women as rape victims. Mm. In East Germany, they make um, explicit references to men as being capable of being raped and as using using this as a platform to call for the reform of rape law in the criminal code. Mm.
1: That's so interesting because that feels very ahead of its time for us. Um, so the final section of your book looks at what happens after reunification. So let's talk about the aftermath of 1989. How did these two shelter movements combine? Um, and what would you say that they you know gained lost, adapted um, in working with each other suddenly?
2: Yeah, the uh, so interestingly, the, one of the first shelters to open, and it does open officially in East Germany, but it's the week before official re- reunification, so it is it is very quickly no longer in East Germany, but it opens in Leipzig. And um, the women involved in opening that shelter start already in 1989, before the fall of the Berlin Wall, and they use the sort of increasing um, freedom Uh, that comes throughout 1989 and especially of course once the berlin wall falls to um, visit shelters in the west to get access to west german literature to west german proposals for shelter projects and so very much this um this the movement in the east draws from the experiences of the west and and i think the 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 years of activism that West German feminists and shelter activists had undertaken enabled East German shelters to open very quickly, um, and and because it legitima- the problem is already seen as being a legitimate problem that a a liberal democratic state needs to address. And so very soon in the process um, of moving towards reunification, there are calls to, to fund shelters to make empty buildings available to be opened as shelters. Um, so I think in that way we can really see how successful the West German movement has been because it enables the East German movement to really, you know, hit the ground running. Um, But in spite of of that, you know, the importance of the West German movement for the creation of East German shelters, initially um, in the very first, you know, after the fall of the Berlin Wall, the the East German shelters that open um, initially work together. And they do so because... They want to focus on the questions and issues facing East German women. East German women, after reunification, are really affected by um, unemployment, which is strongly feminized. Um, of course, a lot of East German companies are forced to close with with reunification because they're not they're no longer profitable. So, a lot of women lose their jobs. They also lose access to um, the the networks of um, childcare that were provided under state socialism. So many of them also were required to take on additional childcare duties that they no longer had access to um, public state care, and and that you know plays a big role in in the issues that are being needing to be addressed in domestic violence shelters. In the in the former East Germany so initially a lot of these shelters in the East um, work together they of course net they of course stay in touch and network with the West but they have their own East German um, shelter organization um, it's also a time when women who are working at these shelters are also having to go out and get uh, new degrees because all of a sudden they um, you know they need to have a social work degree or they need to go out and, and professionalize themselves so so it's not really until um, much later in the 90s that the two the two major organizations of shelters come together and the east the specific East German um, working group is dissolved and merged with uh, with the previously west German um, Organization. Mm-hmm.
1: So, you talk a little bit in the book about this trope of women as losers in German reunification, partly because of some of those things you've just been talking about unemployment, the loss of childcare. But in a lot of ways, your research is really challenging that historiography. So, could you talk more about that? You know, how does this story reimagine that trope? <sighs>
2: yeah the idea of women as losers really emerges in the early 90s um and it's i mean it's largely continued um up till today as being a central part of the story of gender and reunification that women women in east germany are are the losers of reunification they Right. As I mentioned, they're facing unemployment, but also they're facing a significant loss of their reproductive rights. In East Germany, they had on-demand access to uh, abortion in the first trimester of pregnancy from 1972 in East Germany. When reunification comes, West Germany has a much more uh, conservative abortion law, and so there's a huge debate about what the law should be for the new reunified German state. And the law that is then introduced is much more closely reflects the West German law than it does the East. So this really paints reunification as a time of loss for women's rights, um, as what was an opportunity to re-envision the role of of gender and gender equality in the German state into one that actually women are just sort of being forced into quite um, normative patriarchal gender roles again, and I think this is this is really important work, and I uh, don't want to minimize the the impact of the loss of reproductive rights or unemployment. But firstly, I think if we look at domestic violence, a very different story is told. So if we we move the focus away from reproductive rights to domestic violence, there's a much more successful story about women's rights after reunification. Um, As I mentioned, women in East Germany were very much um, left unprotected from violence in the home, right? This Because it officially was not meant to exist, there is very little way in which they could um, contest it. And so the fact that after reunification, there's not only been a blossoming of domestic violence shelters, but also there's been um, a new, what started as a model project, the Berlin, um, it's called Big Berlin Intervention Against Violence Against Women project. That has just um, really revolutionised domestic violence work and it's created a much more um, multidisciplinary, integrated way of thinking about domestic violence, drawing from um, the Duluth model of um, domestic violence uh, intervention. So rather than just helping women to leave abuse, This new project has created hotlines, it's created guidelines for police, it has uh, specifically addressed the issues facing migrant women to Germany, and it's created legislative reform for the first time um, through the um, Protection from Violence Act, which came in in 2002. And the, the law is based on the idea that the abuser should be the one to leave the home, not the not the victim having to go to a shelter. But the abuser should be be the one to leave. And so, in that respect, again, I think if we if we don't just look at reproductive rights, if we think about domestic violence activism and how it um, it grows and develops after reunification, a much more successful story. of of gender in reunification is told. And I think this is particularly important um, given that a lot of the research on ongoing differences between East and West Germany now show that um, women in in what is the former East Germany are now usually better educated than East German men. The gender pay gap, is lessened, um, and and I think those things, and and also less likely to vote for um, radical populist parties. And I think we need to think about how how this story of gender and reunification has changed, not only in the thirty years since reunification, but also depending on what issues of gender we're looking at. Mm-hmm.
1: It's. I really liked in the book how you use the shelter movement as sort of a foil for the reproductive rights movement. Could you talk a little bit about um, what you think it says about how each of those movements was framed and understood? Um, the fact that they have such different fates um, after unification.
2: Yeah, um, it's it's quite interesting because where I whereas I see domestic violence as being a real success story. If we look at the way the history of abortion rights activism has been written in in the history of Germany, it's often portrayed as a failure, that um, they campaigned for change in the 1970s, They actually get a reform, but that that reform is short-lived and then replaced with a more uh, conservative abortion law. And then again, in 1989, 1990, when they have another opportunity to liberalise abortion law, uh, again, it's you know it's not realised. So I think it's quite interesting to think about. Well, why why is one campaign domestic violence? so successful, whereas abortion rights seems to face much more, you know, many more stumbling blocks um, and much more difficulties with being accepted. And, you know, certainly they're very different problems um, and there are questions of religion, of the right to life that shape abortion discussions that don't necessarily figure into domestic violence activism. But one of the things that I wanted to reflect on is, is as you say, this question of why, you know, what what are the what do these different um, stories and trajectories tell us about what is being protected when we talk about the protection of women's rights, and and this is where I think this this gendered element plays a really key role. And that, whereas domestic violence activism fits very snugly with um, gendered narratives of women as victims, as in need of protection, as vulnerable, as and men as you know capable of violence, as you know, as you know potential dangers. You know that fits domestic violence fits with with our gendered ideas, but abortion, with its claims to women's rights to self determination, women's um, sexual autonomy, that challenges those um, much more fundamentally. And I think this is why why we see different um, different successes, different trajectories, um, because ultimately you know, I think part of what, part of the success story of domestic violence activism is about the success of these gendered narratives, that women have women's rights because they are women, not because, um, you know, they have a right to autonomy, to self-determination. And that's why abortion has has, has struggled. Mm-hmm.
1: Well, that's a great way to come to the end of this conversation. And I wanna just ask you one more question that you touched on earlier, which is that some of these ambiguities around whether it's the co-optation of feminist narratives by the media or the tensions with working with government, you said in this interview and in this book that that continues to be reflected in the feminist movement today. Could you reflect just briefly on where these stories have gone? You know, When you look at the feminist movement in Germany today, how did those trade offs,
2: you know, help or hurt
1: it?
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, this. I think this this close connection of of domestic violence with with gendered narratives, but especially with racial narratives of men of men of color of migrant men as being um, somehow you know particularly violent or dangerous. I think that has enabled domestic violence to be co-opted into some of these right-wing anti-migrant um, positions, and and it's no it's no coincidence that we see people advocating for for women's or well advocating for women's rights or advocating for limiting migration on the basis of women's rights. So we need to stop. The migration of certain uh, groups to Germany, because we need to protect women, and and I think we see this coming out a lot in the uh, discussions surrounding the 2016 um, attacks against women in Cologne that happened on New Year's, where where migrant men, particularly um, Muslim men, were 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 blamed and were targeted. And, and, and we see a lot of feminists and women's rights activists, you know, really um, feeding into to racist, xenophobic, anti-migration uh, positions on the basis of advocating for women's rights.
1: Well, I think a really important thing to think about for contemporary movements, looking backwards, you know, what are the trade-offs that you make today and how will those come back to bite you? down the road um, all in all just a really excellent book Jane. and um, it was a pleasure to read and i hope other people will too um, can you tell me what's next for you what are you working on now that you're done with this project
2: yeah well um you know as we we discussed the book does look a lot at reproductive rights and and that's where i'm moving with my my new work um and i'm interested in thinking about um I guess, the struggle after the struggle. So after after the fight for, for women's rights or for, for abortion rights, for reproductive rights, what happens next? Because um, I think there's a really interesting, I mean, if we just look at Germany, there's a really interesting story there about how um, the liberal law is introduced in ways that Continue to limit women's access to reproductive rights, um, and I'm especially interested in uh, women's travel to receive abortion care, both in Germany but also globally, and uh, and why why women seek out care inter- abortion care internationally, or um, and why often authorities require women to to travel as being a way of um, you know punishing them for needing abortions. Fascinating. Well, looking forward to that book. Um, Anyway, Jane,
1: thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. It's been a real pleasure. Yeah, thank you for having me. Um, And once again, I'm Rebecca Trickington. You've been listening to New Books in Women's History, a channel of the New Books Network, and we've been discussing Jane Freeland's new book, Feminist Transformations and Domestic Violence in Divided Berlin, 1969 to 2002, a new 2020 Uh, 2022 release from Oxford University Press and also available open access so you can go read it right now. Thank you very much.